0: Cargo Cult is a production of Radio Nemo West. Well, through, by uh, break wand, and this Cargo Cult is all about the movies, books, music, and moments that helped shape the lifestyle of not only the trucking industry, but also the American obsession with being on the move. What if something just like jumps out in front of you and you have to stop? Don't. What was that? A monster. Host Jimmy Mack and Justin Wellborn engage in a wild, free-form discussion with folks from both the transportation and entertainment worlds. I'm talking to whoever's listening out there. It's a show that's all about the journey. So far we're doing fine, hadn't got a call. And now your hosts, Jimmy Mack and Justin Wellborn. Today on Cargo Co, we're going to talk
1: about a movie that is still to this day considered one of the biggest grossing comedies of all time. I mean, this was a low budget movie made for about mm, 13 million, 3 million, somewhere in between. The numbers seem to uh, vary all over, but somehow has grossed uh, to this very day somewhere around 460 Million dollars! It is an absurdly grossing movie. uh, For all the VHS and DVD releases, this movie won the Palme d'Or at Cannes back in 1970 when it was released. It won the Golden Globe for Best Picture. There's so many facts about this movie that we could spend episode after episode talking about it. But really, I just kind of want to start with the first subtitles of the movie, and then there was Korea. We are, of course, talking about mash i'm justin wellborn and i'm here with my co-host jimmy, jimmy mack jimmy mack good to see you sir. good to see you brother and i'm so glad we're covering this movie because the last couple ones we've had a lot of thoughts on and it's been good or bad or whatever and we're going to talk about some of that with this but this is an actual important movie i mean it got five academy award nominations and actually one for best adapted screenplay Jr. just who uh, was one of the original hollywood 10 and blacklisted and and this is this is part of his comeback this is part of the 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 way that uh, after the blacklisting that he starts writing again and this becomes a a huge film for for almost everybody involved because
2: many of the actors that star in this movie this is this is their launching pad as well yeah this movie in a lot of ways has the same kind of impact that you know you back in the 80s with movies like um uh taps and The Outsiders. Yeah, they had and, Patton
1: coming out and, yeah. at, at the same time as this
2: movie. Yeah, and there's a lot of movies that launch people's careers, and there are movies that launch a whole bunch of people's careers. And and this one, in many ways, it puts Duvall on the map, Robert Duvall. It puts Donald Sutherland on the map. It puts Elliot Gould on the map. Uh, it puts— um, Tom, Sally, Skerritt. Tom Skerritt. Tom <laughs> Scarrett, Sally Kellerman. Uh, all of these people— um, end up being in a movie that is, I think, is about as perfect a movie of its kind as you possibly could imagine. For its kind. A black comedy war
1: film that is a commentary, of course, on the Vietnam War, but oh, the studio really wanted to make sure that you knew that it was Korea. We're, I, t- we're talking about the past here, guys, I not do, now. I
2: do <laughs> like the fact that I think every once in a while, we've talked about this. Sometimes the studio gets stuff right. Sometimes the studio changes an ending or makes an alteration that makes a difference. And I think that setting it in Korea, making it absolutely... Co- clear that it is Korea and not Vietnam, gives us the distance to be able to enjoy the film. It's almost unbearable if it's Vietnam.
1: Sure. It's almost it, it would be
2: too immediate. It's too, too immediate. Too immediate, and immediate and almost especially unbearable. Especially in
1: 1970 when it's still happening.
2: And I'll tell you this too. The other problem is, is the fact that they're. I don't know how they managed to do it, but there's a more of a madman sensibility to the behavior of the men and women in this place. It actually looks like madmen, the way they sure. act. It has that same Except sort of- Except
1: with mud for streets and blood on the floor from the operating rooms and even their tents are just the swamp. Smoking, <laughs> smoking
2: drinking, brilliance, and sexism kind of royal their way through this with a really kind of glib attitude towards life and death that also permeates the in many ways you can make a case that mash is like mad men like the dick van dyke show it's a workplace comedy absolutely as a matter of fact one of
1: the things that i love about it is that the tone of voice that all of our leads take on who are all surgeons is all very conversational they almost never get really excited or loud. The people that get loud are the ones that are core army, you know, hot lips, the colonel, you know, the generals. They get loud. The Martinets of the military. They're the ones that start shouting and dictating orders. We're what it's you all would the... call
2: a real army clown. <laughs>
1: right? That's that's what she is to somebody like Hawkeye Pierce, you know. This is somebody that's playing so close to the rules that they don't understand the absurdity of the situation that they're in. We're in a war three miles from the front butchering young men, and our job is just to stitch them back together so that hopefully they live or maybe we can throw them back into battle.
2: I would argue that this movie, because of its unique sound design at the time, that that 8-track. Right that unique Altman approach to doing sound, sound that overlaps, dialogue that overlaps, sound from one scene that carries into the next, is the first time, maybe ever, but definitely American. I think that Jean Renoir, who made Rules of the Game, can make an argument for this, although it's mu- he's much more formal than that. It's the first time we see a movie that feels like American jazz. Hmm. And I mean that in regards to its structure. That there is no lead per se, there is no lead guitar, there is no, um, there is no uh, lead singer, there is no front man, there is no personality. Sure, this we're is- not
1: following one person through this. We're following everyone's situation. Now, there are people we concentrate on more, but one way or the other, we don't have a central protagonist.
2: So the film depicts the unit of a medical personnel stationed at a mobile army surgical hospital during the Korean War and, of course, stars Donald Sutherland, um, Ellie Tom Gold, Skerlitt, Tom
1: Skerritt, like, Sally Kellerman, Robert Duvall, Roger Brown, who plays Lieutenant Colonel Henry Blake. Awesome. Rene Aberjanwa. maybe? Uh, who plays Father McKehe? I'm totally going to get that wrong. You're welcome to say something no, about I'm, it. I'm,
2: I'm happy that you crossed the Rubicon. I know. A I, bit I,
1: I, I just had to throw it out there. We get uh, Gary Burkhor, who plays Radar, who is the only one that jumps from the film into the TV series that is spawned from this film.
2: And and one of the things that uh, Doonesbury creator Gary Trudeau said about the movie was that it was perfect for the times, a cacophony of American culture brilliantly reproduced on screen. And I, and I go back to the jazz comment I made. So you think about the way jazz works that you have a theme the band plays together there's a breakout moment where somebody gets their solo it then goes back to the theme the theme changes a little bit the next solo artist kind of picks up and does their thing that solo then feeds back into the theme the theme expands and grows and contracts over time it if you go back and watch it i think in many ways it is perfectly structured for the mess it seems to be it actually goes from large ensemble moments to individual personal moments back to solo moments back to larger moments back to small it it, it just moves back and forth right. between the scenes of like telling moving stories darkly comical stories infuriating stories terrifying stories it and it all manages to pull itself together. And I think one of the ways he achieves it is that Altman, who's always been good, whether it's McCabe and Mrs. Miller or Nashville, which is also a remarkable movie, at created ensembles. I think this one works better than any because he's got a device in it that allows him to pull the whole thing together, which is the intercom system, which is just brilliantly employed. Which is an afterthought because apparently
1: this movie is based off a novel, which even all was Holcomb. like, this was a terrible book and it's kind of racist and it's, but all The incidents that happen in the movie are in the book. It's the book. And you think that this movie is a bunch of improv. It kind of feels like it's improv because they're talking over one another. It's a very naturalistic kind of delivery. But at the same time, almost like, no, they sometimes put it into their own words, but that's what we wrote. This is the order we wrote it in. They go back later and add this connective tissue of the intercom system to provide comedic relief, to provide interludes, to provide a tone shift in each part of the movie. And somehow it takes all these disparate events and binds it all together into a movie that's so ultimately watchable that it is literally considered um, a culturally, historically, and aesthetically significant film that has been put into the Library of Congress and its film section in so many other ways.
2: It, it, it it's also brilliant film it's a brilliant movie it is and I, I can't re- recommend it enough it's one of the my wife asked me when we first met to show her three movies that she felt spoke to me that I would like as opposed to I'll, I'll recommend I'll talk to people and say like well tell me what you like and then I'll tell you the best example of that for you and then I often get that right she says I want three movies you love and let's see if we love them together and they were Chinatown The French Connection and MASH and all three she was like <laughs> oh my god this
1: is why we make this show together because both of those all those movies are some of my absolute favorites.
2: Yeah, and it's just the, the the movie the the movie has so much going on in it that you can do repeated viewings and find something else to enjoy, find something else to kind of roll with. I hadn't seen it in years, and yet it was like revisiting an
1: old friend. There. And and I saw things that I hadn't seen before, which is
2: truly the mark of a good movie. How about when they're in when they're in Seoul, and they're getting filmed by the news crew that. Is exactly the scene I was just
1: talking about he when he stands up off. and Hawkeye Pierce, who always has a quip for everything. And he's suddenly caught out and he's alone there. And she says, you want to say hi to your mom? And he goes, well, my, my mom's dead. Oh, and, oh but uh, I just want to say he he doesn't have really anything prepared. And it's a genuine Human moment in this mass of people, and he goes, "Hi, Dad."
2: Yeah, it wrecks me, dude. It wrecks me. It wrecks me because there's a thing too where it's like you know, you think about this, and they're just moments, and it happened to me. And I got to tell you, we had phone calls about this on my show. I will tell you that there are moments where somebody's my will ask me, "You okay?" I "I just miss my dad." Hmm. I'll just yeah, and he's alive. I I don't want to, but I I just like I will miss my dad. I will miss my mom. And the moment he takes up, they goes, "Hi, Dad." Yeah. and it's he's such a prick in the movie too. And we get
0: Thanks for listening to a preview of this episode of Cargo Cold. Like what you heard, hear more from Jimmy Mack and Justin Wellborn exclusively on the SiriusXM app. Subscribe today at siriusxm.com.